I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. We're going to be continuing this morning on our series in the book of Mark. Mark's great gospel, the big reveal, the first thing that was written um, down to tell us about Christ and his identity and why he came. It's a great book. We're having a great time going through it. You know, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember, which is pretty long. I remember having a load in my diaper, so that's pretty good. But I've been a Christian for all that time. But even after living um, all those years in a relationship with the Lord, there are still challenges that test my faith. You probably would agree with me for your part as well. So I'm pretty sure I'm not alone anyway. And so out of curiosity, this week I asked my Facebook friends if there were things that challenged their ability to trust Christ. And the response was overwhelming. Here's some of the responses I got, and I kind of categorized these. A lot of people talked about not trusting God with their children, their safety, maybe their futures, uh, losing their faith. That was a big one. And being a, a victim of a potential abuser. Um, there's also financial security. Um, do I have enough to retire? Am I making enough money to provide for my family's needs? A spouse or other family relationships. A lot of women worried about their husband dying. I worry about constantly. I'm, I'm assuming every day that Steve will drop dead. And it, it gets a little old for him sometimes, but that's how I feel. <laughs> um, any kind of relationship issues, though, in a marriage. Um, control was another one. Um, things happening to you out of nowhere. Uh, people's decisions that might affect us even though we have no control over them. Uh, injustice is another one. Being able to forgive a wrong that was done to you. Uh, being accused when something's unfair. Um, and and any, any unfairness in general, that's a tough one. We wonder where God is on that. Trusting religious leaders. Um, we've seen in recent years all the children's abuse that's come to light through leaders and, um, and, and now females are being abused on, on some of the things in the church. So not good. His goodness and love, God's goodness and love. Not enough faith. Do I have enough faith? Do I believe hard enough? Unanswered prayer. I had my next-door neighbor from my childhood write to me and say, I keep asking God for things, and he won't do them. And, um, and so, or, or that maybe he won't love me after I sin or think less of me, or something. Illness, health, is another worry. Chronic pain is one, trusting him with that, that the fact that it exists. Serious illnesses, like cancer, um, other things, and then, of course, death. Now, although there are abundant evidences of God's love and kindness all around us, there always also seem to be things that are a stretch for us to hand over to God. Well, the passage we're going to look at today is going to be very helpful to us in that we're going to find principles that will enable us to trust God more. We'll be reading about the incident of Jesus' miracle and calming the storm. You probably noticed all the storm references in our songs this morning. But we're going to take a look at Mark 4, verses 3 to 40, 35 to 41 in continuation in our series, The Big Reveal. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind 
and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still know, have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who is this then that even the wind and sea obey him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing story. We thank you, Jesus, God of creation, was able to control the wind and the waves to show us just how mighty, how powerful he is, and yet doing it in a way with his loving care. We ask you, God, that as we look through this passage, that you would give us truths that will enable us to trust you more and that you will transform us through them. Speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Jesus had been teaching all day, and he was doing it from a boat. And so he was a little offshore, and then he could speak to the crowds on the shore listening to him. So to give you a mental picture of the setting of this whole thing, I want to show you a map of the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's a a larger picture of the entire uh, country of Israel, and then this is a kind of an inset of the Sea of Galilee region. You can see it's way north of the Dead Sea along the Jordan River. So the Sea of Galilee is there, and uh, it's not very big. If it were here in the United States, we would be calling it a lake, not a sea. Um, if you had had to hike around it, it would take you, it would, you would walk 33 miles. From north to south, the lake is 13 miles long, and it's 8 miles wide. So it's not a huge body of water. Some of the disciples knew it very well. Because before Jesus, they had worked a fishing, book, a fishing business from those very waters. Now, the region around the Sea of Galilee is very mountainous. And so there are ravines, valleys, in which um, water comes down from the mountains and, uh, and funnels down into the lake. But those creases in the formation um, also serve as something else. They serve as funnels at times when the winds aloft, up high, are compressed as the cooler air sinks, and that rushing air meets the warmer air that's down below, and of course the clash of warm and cool air produces a storm. Um, And the Sea of Galilee is actually known for its violent storms that come up out of nowhere. Now, I had a little experience with this, more on a a vicarious level. Um, I worked at a Christian camp that was located on the side of a lake very similar to the Sea of Galilee in certain terms of its dimensions. And we were surrounded by mountains. So we would often have a storm come up on us with little warning because there was a mountain behind us, and as the storm built, we didn't see it until it was actually right on us. Well, one afternoon, my buddies, Frank and Tim, took a small sunfish sailboat. Remember those? I don't even know if they still exist. Um, Two-man sailboat set out during free time. And they'd gotten mostly across the lake when a storm came right over the mountains. So they headed back to camp. But it was a challenge because as the storm let loose, um, the winds were actually blowing away from our shore. So they had to zigzag all the way home, which takes way longer. And as they're zigzagging, the rain is pouring, the thunder's crashing, lightning is hitting all around them. We were scared to death. We were in the boathouse. We were watching them, wondering if they were going to make it or not. We were praying for them. When they finally docked the boat and ran inside the the boathouse, we all were gathered around. They said, what was it? Were you okay? Was it really scary? And this is what Tim told us. I rededicated my life to the Lord five times out there. (laughs) You know, a violent storm with no warning is a scary thing. 
especially in the dark. And that's where they were at that time, the disciples. Um, it was frightening. The waves were so big, they were crashing over the boat, and there was, this was no little sunfish. A fishing boat from the first century was found in 1986. It was buried, so it had been well-preserved. It was about 27 feet. That's about four and a half Steve Coleman's long and seven and a half feet wide. It could hold about 15 people. And both the front ends and the back ends had had uh, some kind of a platform or a deck on either end of the boat, um, providing a space on either which to sit or to lie underneath to get out of the sun. The boat would have been propelled by four oars, four people. So as the waves crashed over the sides, the disciples' boat was filling with water. The situation was grim enough that even the experienced fishermen, guys who made their living on the water, were in a panic. And this was in a culture where swimming was not a recreational activity. And sinking in rough seas in the middle of the lake would surely result in the loss of life. Seeing that Jesus was sleeping through the crisis, and of course he was after a long day of teaching. I can tell you one hour of a sermon, I have to go home and take a nap. He was teaching all day. They woke him up. And they did it with a very accusatory tone. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Or one commentary which retranslated that as, teacher, are we to drown for all you care? Well, we might be offended that they spoke to Jesus like that, but I kind of understand how they were feeling. You see, I'm not very good in an emergency. My family will tell you that as a fact. I freeze. Now, last week, Melanie and I were having a continental breakfast at a hotel in North Carolina. Carolina. And while I was busy toasting my bagel, Melanie was over pouring waffle batter to put in the thing to make a fresh waffle. You probably have done that in a hotel before. Well, when she went to pour the batter, the spigot snapped off in her hand. And so now the batter is pouring out of this big container, huge container full of the brim with batter, glug, glug, glug. So Melanie screams for me as I'm over by the bagel, totally clueless, and she says, Mom, call somebody at the desk. It was just around the corner. And I turned around and I looked. And I looked at my daughter standing there with her hand trying to stop the flow of batter all over the counter. And I was like a Dutch boy with his finger in the dike. And I stood there and I didn't even know what to do until somebody next to us on the table yelled to the lady in the corner desk, get over here, we had an accident. And I said, okay, sprung me into action. I went and got napkins and I saved the day. <laughs> no, I didn't. I mean, I did get the napkins. I did not save the day. I'm terrible in an emergency. I don't think the right things and a crisis is tough. So I get the disciples in their rudeness of the moment. But Jesus was not affected by their treatment. He stands up. He rebukes the wind, and he tells the waves to be still. Now, this story has a ring of familiarity to it if you know the story of Jonah. Remember him, the prophet who ran away from what God was telling him to do? And so Jonah was also awakened by a storm at sea. And the, story, the sailors in his story were scared for their lives as well, as well. But here's the difference. The captain of Jonah's boat tells him, Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so we won't perish. But in the case of Mark's account, Jesus calls on no one. He calms the storm himself. 
Now, I want you to understand the significance of that. In the Old Testament, only God can calm a storm. I want to read to you a little section of Psalm 107. It says this, those who go down into the sea of those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths, their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He, corm, he caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. God alone, my friends. God alone has that kind of power. God alone is Lord of creation, who speaks in the wind and seas obey. And at that moment in the boat, so did Jesus. Are you getting the connection? Jesus does only what God only can do. And how did he speak to the wind and the waves? That's a little telling too. The original language gives us insight. It's translated, he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be still. That word rebuke has already been used by Mark two other times in chapters one to four. But both of them, it was when Jesus was rebuking an evil spirit. In the Greek lexicon, they define it as expressing strong disapproval to speak seriously, to warn, in order to prevent or bring an action to an end. So it's a stern kind of a voice. The second word translated be still carries a sense of muzzled. Sometimes I wish I could muzzle my dog. It's an unusual verb form that indicates that the condition will persist. Sorry, I'm having trouble today. It really could be translated be still and stay still. So Mark uses an adjective in that story two times, too. And whenever you see a repeated word, you've got to look and wonder what that means. Megas, the Greek word, translated great. If you look at the literal, trans, literally translate those two, past, two sentences, the first says, it was a great storm, and Jesus replaced it by a great calm. His language conveys the completeness of Jesus' action and his miracle, his authority over nature. Creation is the servant responding immediately to its master's command. Now, the disciples understood immediately that they had just witnessed their rabbi do what only God could do. Everything that Jesus does communicates God to us. No wonder he's called the word. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and asked them two questions. Why? Are you afraid? And the second one, do you still have no faith? Now, these questions go hand in hand because fear comes from a lack of trust. You know, in my younger years, I rode a lot of scary roller coasters. And as much as I rode them, I don't even know why I did because I didn't like them at all. <laughs> they terrified me. Why? Because I didn't trust the structure. Back in the old days, roller coasters looked like that. They were made of wood. And who knew when that thing was going to collapse? That particular roller coaster is one I actually rode. It was at Riverside Park in uh, Massachusetts. Um, but I was, I was scared about the thing would collapse. I was scared that the wheels wouldn't stay on the tracks. 
And I hung on for dear life because I didn't trust the seatbelt or the thing that goes over your head or whatever it is that keeps you in place. Didn't trust it. So the result of all that lack of trust, I was terrified. So Jesus asked them, why are you scared? Don't you trust me yet? Because that's what faith is. Faith is believing in something. It's trust. So the storm did scare them. But then Mark tells them that after the incident, they were very much afraid. And why? Well, the next quote reveals it. Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? I believe that sudden realization they had when that sea and those winds went calm, that they needed that storm. I get there because of the context of Mark. In recent days, there had been challenges made to Jesus' authority and his source of power. If you remember in chapter 2, when before healing a paralytic that got lowered down through the ceiling, Jesus told him, son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes were thinking this, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Then in chapter 3, Mark tells us Jesus' family came to take custody of him, saying he's lost his senses. And then immediately after, the scribes are saying he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by ruler of demons. Now, the disciples, they were early in their time with Jesus. This is only Mark chapter 4. And, and hearing everyone who should be in the know, religious leaders whose job was to find out if someone was a false teacher, his family who should have known him better than anybody else, were rejecting him, rejecting anything he was teaching or saying it was from God. Seeing that probably had a big impact on them. It would have on me. So what does Jesus do? He tells in the parable of the sower and the seed that most would reject him. Not unexpected, but some would believe. Some would grow and multiply. God would grow his kingdom. Then he tells the disciples, after that parable and a couple others, to push off from the shore, travel to the other side, because God was about to add to their understanding about Jesus in a very big way and blow all that insecurity and mistrust right out of the water. What they were about to experience would leave no doubt in their mind that Jesus was greater than anyone who had come before, they would begin to understand that he was the son of God. So what? How should this story impact my life in the here and now? Well, the one thing I want you to remember, half a thing, <laughs> is this. When a storm hits, and we all have them, remember, God is not punishing you. We opened with some of the fears that my Facebook friends expressed. We have trouble leaving our fate, our, um, in the, our fate of our loved ones in God's hands, and we fear the worst. Why? Well, I think it's because we mistakenly hold the assumption that God is up in heaven just waiting for us to make a mistake. Uh, he's up there watching us uh, with a metaphorical paddle in his hand, ready to punish us for our bad choices. We even sang it in Sunday school as children. Remember the old Sunday school song? Be careful, little hands, what you do. There's a God up above, and he's looking. Down in love. Be careful, little hands, what you do. So when the bad things come along, we're assuming that God is pouncing on us for, for, uh, or being punished for something we've done. 
that God is giving us just what we deserve. But is that what was happening to the disciples in that boat? Nope. They were rowing across the rake, lake, poor Jesus' instructions. He said, go to the other side. And they picked up their rows, oars and they started rowing. They were doing exactly what he told them to do. So the storm did not come along to punish them. God had an entirely different purpose in mind. In the Old Testament story of Job, a big storm of devastating events struck all at once. His very large herds of donkeys, oxen, sheep, and camels, along with the servants who worked with them, um, were either stolen, taken away, kidnapped, or killed. Then a windstorm struck, and it collapsed the house where his children were all gathered and killed them all. And if losing all that was not enough, Job was struck with a terrible case of painful boils. The only one, the only thing left untouched was Job's wife. And she was no prize, believe me. Her advice to Job was this, curse God and die. Nice woman. His friends all assumed that Job had sinned and God was punishing him because that was the thought with Israel back in the day. One friend said, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. You reap what you sow, Joe. Time to confess that sin. But the Bible gives us no indication that what happened to Job was anything more than a test from Satan, who was determined to prove that Job's love for God would not stand up to trouble. In fact, ironically, Job was experiencing all he was because of his faithfulness. So we should never assume that trouble means God is punishing us. And here's why. Here's the New Testament truth. Jesus has already taken the wrath of God for us, for all our sin, past, present, and future. Our sin problem has already been resolved because Jesus took our punishment in our place. So the storm on the Sea of, uh, the, of Galilee was not punishment for disobedience. It was actually a way of revealing more of Christ, who Christ was to the disciples. Now they had watched him do miracles, had heard him teach remarkable things, but even the 12 guys on that inside track, getting the private explanations of Jesus' parables, still didn't understand completely. Well, they had a lot to learn. It's going to take us an eternity to learn about God. But the learning was a process that finally accumulated after the resurrection, culminated when Jesus revealed it all to them. Remember what they said following the miracle. Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? God was taking them deeper. It's how God used all Job's trouble too, to teach him more about the God he thought he knew. I think the worst thing that happened to Job through all of the tragedy was in those days afterwards, God's silence. Because you know, Job is 42 chapters long, and Job doesn't hear from God till chapter 38. 37 chapters of silence. Now, he, uh, his friends were badgering him all the time, but God was determined to trust in God alone. And he said to his wife, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But as time went by, and the silence of God continued on, and there were no answers, he really did get discouraged. He said this in chapter 30, He has cast me into the mire, 
and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride and you dissolve me in a storm. Discouragement. But when God finally revealed himself to Job, it was after 37 chapters, but he never answers that obvious question. Why? But he shows himself to God. He shows how he's involved in every single part of creation, from the roaring seas and keeping them in their place to the birth pangs of a deer. How he is involved in all the things, from the biggest to the small. It's all managed by his mighty but gentle arm. And when God finishes revealing just that part of him, Job's response is humble and awe. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful to me, for me which I did not know. I have heard of you by the roaring of the ear, hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Just like Job discovered, just like the apostles, the disciples discovered, the storm was a means of revelation about God. So when we have been disappointed or we're reeling from some kind of catastrophe, we need to look through the pain to what God is revealing to us about him. We need to regard life's storms and threats not as a disaster, but as opportunities to see God's transforming power in our, at work in our lives. We need to understand more. We need to go deeper with him. And what we will find is a personal living God who intervenes in the experience of men with a revelation of his power and will. And as the disciples did through the storm, we will more clearly understand the Christ, the Son of God. The subduing of the sea and the wind was not merely a demonstration of power. No, no. It was an epiphany through which Jesus was unveiled to his disciples as their Savior in the midst of intense peril. Now, they knew something they didn't know before. And it changed everything for them. In closing, I'd like to tell you that down in the catacombs, underneath the uh, city of Rome, there were some Christian writings and artwork discovered. Um, and we find that the early church used the story of Jesus subduing the storm as symbolic of their own struggles. You see, at the time that Mark was being written, uh, the Nero had come into power, and he was terrible to the Christians. C persecution, um, murders, uh, the things out in the Colosseum, those horrible battles, all of those things. They saw the story of Jesus as symbolic of their own struggles. Uh, the oppression, torture, and murder were facing really was threatening to overwhelm them. So the church then was depicted as a boat driven along a perilous sea. But... Jesus' followers took hope in that picture because even though the boat was being overwhelmed, taking on water, but with Jesus in the midst, there was nothing to fear. Mark's first readers were assured that even such a powerful movement against them could never swamp their boat. God's kingdom would prevail because the God of the winds and the waves would be with them till the end. God is worthy of our trust. He has our best in mind, 
even when it's hard to trust that the fact is true. He allows storms in our lives so we can understand him on an ever-deepening level. He is our Savior, and he will not fail us.